0: Hi, everyone. And welcome to Hear Here, my audiobook podcast. I'm Dan Masterton, and I'm reading to you from my second fiction story, Abundance, Not Scarcity. If you'd like to get a paperback copy of the book, or if you'd like a free copy of this story as an ebook optimized for iPhone or iPad, visit my Linktree at linktr.ee Dan Masterton. That's l i n k t r.ee Dan Masterton. There's links there to all my writing including the link to the paperback order form, as well as a link to the Google Drive folder with free ebook versions of both of my fiction stories. My previous story, What There Is To Be Done, is also available in this podcast feed. Just hop back to season one. I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback about these stories. Find me on Twitter at thisladdan, or email me at dmastert at alumni.nd.edu. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this chapter, and stick around at the end for a bonus reflection. May we all identify and come to understand God's ongoing invitations for us. Cheers! Noah reached for his wrist and squeezed the tiny button on the side of his Fitbit. His sleepy movement successfully discontinued the alarm buzzing into his wrist. For a moment, Noah didn't grasp where he was or what was going on. A glance to his nightstand and the strange old alarm clock that shone with the red digital numbers 301 reminded him he wasn't in his own bed at home. Noah clicked on the lamp. The small dimensions, plain furniture, and sparse decor, just a few pieces of sacred art and a small crucifix, brought Noah all the way back to reality. This was his room in the guest wing of the Abbey of Gethsemane, where he had set a 3 a.m. alarm to wake his presently weary soul for the start of the monastic prayers. Last night, Noah had walked away from the group in a sort of fog. He remembered Father Ambrose wishing them a good night, murmuring to the other men as they all exited, and then walking back to this very room. But something in him was still unlanded, ungrounded, as yet floating around a bit. His last lucid moment, or at least what he thought was lucid, was the distinct uttering of the words, What are you doing here? He remembered hearing it as if he was listening to someone sitting right beside him. He had no sense of how to describe it other than that. Somehow he felt more comfortable basking in that uncertainty than trying to drill down to some possible explanation beneath it. When he dressed down to his undershirt and boxer shorts and pulled on his old gym shorts for bed, his only thought was, I would like to return to prayer. The schedule Father Ambrose had provided came with an invitation and zero expectation. Noah felt like freely taking it up. As he read it, his finger had slid to the top line. 3.15 a.m. vigils. So Noah had calmly set the alarm on his Fitbit app for 3 a.m., synced it to the device on his wrist, and laid down. He fell asleep quickly and rested easy. It was only now, at 3.05 a.m. this next morning, that Noah was becoming slightly self-aware of the sequence of the past eight hours, but only enough to follow through with getting up to do this next thing. Noah pulled on an old Cistercian Academy hoodie. He often wore it around his home, whether he was on an alumni event or not, and pushed his chilly feet into slide-on slippers. He didn't put out the lamp, he didn't stop to brush his teeth, he didn't even think twice about whether or not it was appropriate to wear ratty clothes and be nearly barefoot in an abbey church. What he did manage to do was lethargically shuffle to the church's loft, which was a conveniently short distance away, around the corner down the hallway. He pushed open the door from the guest wing into the lofted gallery and continued his shuffling to a pew. In the pre-dawn darkness and the bleariness of the very early wake-up, Noah didn't even realize he had sat down in the same spot where he was the night before. He also still didn't have much of a way to describe what had happened to him while sitting in that seat just a few hours earlier. Noah felt like he shouldn't write it off as a delusion, yet he also had trouble wrapping his mind around the meditative experience and trying to describe what he felt and heard. All he knew is that he had suggestively followed a benevolent and faithful meditation, and that path brought him to a place of peace. For now, his only active decision was to go with the flow. Even if he couldn't articulate the particularity of that moment from last night, he could continue to dive into the rest of the retreat. And for someone who had often struggled to muster momentum and make choices to get himself going, what simpler task could there be than to show up and follow the directions of the steadiest example of fidelity there might be in the modern world. Noah wasn't looking at his watch, but indeed at 3.15 a.m. the monks were in their choir stalls and rose to begin their vigils with the opening prayer. The gentle drone of their men's voices echoed off the wood and stone and up to Noah's ears, and he mined for the participatory words of the prayer in his sleepy brain. God, O God, O Lord, hear... O Lord, come to my assistance. There it was. The veil of bleariness had lifted slightly, enough to be prayerfully functional. Noah squinted down at the psalter beside him and flipped to the pages for this morning's psalms. As he began to intone the verses with his side of the chapel, he felt a smoother pace and more controlled volume at this early hour. The gallery was empty except for him, and as best as he could hear, the guest seating below him seemed vacant as well. It was just him and the monks— Being the only guest voice might have been an exposing feeling, but in this distinct context of tiredness, solitude, and faithful routine, Noah found the right volume, the right pace, and the right solidarity, settling his voice in gentle blend with the men before him. The period of prayer surged timelessly forward until the chanting concluded. A brief silence reigned. The abbot knocked his ring against the wood of his chair. The men gradually dispersed out from their stalls and into the early morning. After a few minutes, Noah was alone in the lofty chapel. He wasn't sure what to do. It's barely 4 a.m. Lods are at 5.45. What do I do? What do the monks do? Should I go back to sleep? That feels like a waste. He paused in this place for a moment and glanced around. You know, there's the same amount of light here right now as there was last night. But somehow the early morning just feels different than the late night. Maybe it's because I've slept, even if not as long as I'd have liked, Now I feel like I'm moving forward, even in the dark. Last night, when I sat down, I felt like I was starting to crash. As he scanned the empty space, his eyes settled on the one thing in the dark stillness that moved just the slightest bit, the red-cupped candle of the tabernacle. He took a gentle inhale and let his shoulders and chest droop a bit in relaxation. His eyes dropped downward a bit with his body. Noah was essentially catching his breath, even if not from any significant physical exertion. He saw a Bible on the pew in front of him. The book was face down, open, with its spine sticking up in the air a bit. Noah cocked his head to the side and decided to pick it up. He stuck his thumb between the wood of the pew and the crunch of the tissue papery pages and grabbed the softback book by its spine to flip it over. Noah plopped the Bible in his lap, keeping it open to the same page where it had been left. In the dim light, his eyes first noticed a big, bolded number 10, a chapter marker for this book. Noah looked to the top of the page and saw the Bible had been left open to the Gospel of Mark. He looked up and down the page a bit and next noticed a section header, the blind Bartimaeus. Okay, that's kind of funny, Noah thought. I'm sitting here bleary-eyed at 4 a.m. in a dark chapel, and the Bible I find is open to a story about a blind guy. A bit on the nose, don't you think? He thought, posing a rhetorical question to no one in particular. Still sort of indecisive, but anchored at least in going with the flow of monastic living slash party crashing, Noah started to read silently. They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a sizable crowd, Noah stopped. Again, he was chuckling with no audience. A crowd? Here I am, a crowd of one. He imagined what it would sound like if he had laughed out loud in an empty, reverberant church. Hmm, imagine, Noah thought. Father C was big on that. I mean, it was just one unit in that class, but he really seemed to love challenging us to imagine. He enjoyed when we'd see the story from the inside. Noah recalled doing imaginative immersion with scripture in that theology class with his old form master. He even remembered reading the story of the siege of Jericho by the Israelites, and Father Chrysaginus showing them pictures of Jericho's palm trees, its streams, its location in a region that became so central to salvation history. In his mind, the browns of the stone walls, and the church wood brightened a bit and became sandy. Noah shuffled his feet and legs to reset his posture, and the friction of his body's movements resounded gently through the quiet air. Noah's imagination latched on the echoes in the chapel and translated them to the patter of footsteps. The growing sound invited Noah's eyes to close, and as he lost sight of the dark chapel, he began to see the yellowed brown of a desert landscape, tinted by the brightness of an unclouded sun and clear blue sky contrasted by varying hues of tans and beiges and khakis in the tunics of men on a dirt road. Noah looked down the road and saw various groups of people scattered along the roadside, in twos and threes and larger clumps. Some had their backs to the road as they conversed or conducted bits of commerce, while others were watching the foot traffic with their eyes fixed on an approaching group. Noah followed their stairs down the way to a contingent that was drawing nearer, There was a man walking at the front with a few people at either side of him who seemed to be jockeying for his attention. They were doing so in a way that seemed to be competitive to them but hardly registered with the lead man. Just behind them were another dozen or so people who were mostly quiet, murmuring among themselves and seemingly ready to bend their ears toward this man in the front. Jesus, Noah thought. It's Jesus. He mentally exclaimed, holy mother of God, but he was worried she was in the pack walking the road too. Somehow Noah stood his ground, feet planted on the shifting dirt beside the trodden path and looking on. He scanned the roadside between Jesus and himself. It seemed the buzz of Jesus' approach was circulating through the various huddled groups, and while some people blew it off, many folks were drifting closer to the roadside to take a peek. Noah noticed one place where there was an abrupt break in the swelling crowds. Between two raucous, gawking groups, there was a gap and a man sitting on the ground. He made no effort to stand up or reposition himself or do much of anything. The man simply glanced around with a relatively plain, vacant stare. Is he blind? Noah wondered. Does he know what's happening right in front of him? Maybe his hearing is sharp enough that he'll overhear some chatter around him. But would he even know who Jesus of Nazareth is? Would he realize the magnitude of this close encounter? The group of men, nearest to the seated blind man, must have had their fill of people watching and decided to head on their way. As they crossed in front of Noah to turn and head in a direction perpendicular to the road, they were chatting about this Jesus who was walking toward them. The body language of those departing men suggested they found Jesus unimpressive, but the blind man overheard their comments and perked up. He must have heard something. Maybe he heard them say the name Jesus, and he knew who they were talking about, Noah thought. And then Noah remembered the last words he had read, the heading and first verse of the Bible he had snagged from the pew. That's Bartimaeus, Noah realized. Noah's eyes widened. Jesus and the disciples were getting closer. A crowd behind them was keeping pace like they had been tethered to the teacher or like they were coming past the rope line behind the final group on the 18th hole at a golf tournament. As Jesus' group neared the spot where the blind man sat, Bartimaeus called out, abruptly but not rudely, Jesus, son of David, have pity on me. Noah was watching in disbelief. He literally couldn't believe his ears. He was standing in Jericho, across from Bartimaeus, hearing his words in the gospel. Some people around Bartimaeus on the roadside tried to shush him. Noah couldn't tell for sure, but he thought maybe a few of the disciples were part of that backlash against the man too. Amid the commotion, a man beside Noah spoke up. Do you believe this guy? He asked Noah. Could you imagine being a guy like that and having the gall to say something like that to someone like him? The man continued asking Noah. Noah was too dumbfounded to really respond to that man. He was locked into the scene just down the way. Noah just nodded ever so slightly without looking aside, hoping that would satisfy his involuntary interlocutor and yet leave his questions unanswered. Noah was trying to figure out the situation. Did Jesus not hear him because it was too loud? Did Bartimaeus not shout loudly and clearly enough? Or did Jesus really ignore a poor blind man? Noah was wondering. Or did he hear him and move forward because maybe he wanted to hear him again? Was Jesus leaving more space for Bartimaeus to speak and be heard? Noah saw Bartimaeus falter a bit. The resolve in his previously upright posture dissipated slightly. But the blind man, even now slumping a bit, lifted his chin and called out again, more calmly, almost indifferently. Son of David, have pity on me. Jesus had passed the place where Bartimaeus was sitting, which meant Jesus had also passed the peak of the hubbub along the road. This time Jesus stopped in his tracks. He had gotten pretty close to where Noah was standing, and Noah was curious to hear Jesus's voice. But Jesus didn't speak. He turned a quarter turn to face his disciples and gestured toward the man with a gentle raise of the thumb and a tilt of the head at his neck. The disciples didn't seem thrilled, but they understood. Two of the men following Jesus broke off from the pack on the road and returned to where Bartimaeus, still seated along the road, was waiting. As they approached, one of them flatly addressed the blind man. He said, "Take courage, get up. He is calling you." Bartimaeus's posture straightened, and calm surprise flowed through his face. He started to shuffle his limbs to get himself standing, but he wasn't moving smoothly and quickly enough for the disciples. The two men crouched down and grabbed hold of Bartimaeus' arms at his biceps. With less gingerness than Noah would have liked to see, the disciples pulled him up in a way that more closely resembled club bouncers than bedside nurses. However, once Bartimaeus was on his feet, he was led slightly more gently by these disciples. The three of them slowly approached where Jesus was standing, waiting, facing a direction that left Noah staring at the facial profile of the Son of Man. As Noah watched Bartimaeus and his helpers close the distance, the words of the disciples rang through Noah's mind Take courage. Get up. He is calling you. In the few times Noah could remember hearing this story and thinking about it a little, these words always felt hopeful, encouraging, inspiring. Yet watching and hearing the story in this way revealed something much different. Here were two men who had the great standing of being disciples of an increasingly famous and sought after teacher who walked with the perception of privilege and respect, and some derision, for many of those around them, even if Jesus encouraged more simplicity and some remained deeply skeptical of their movement. When these men approached Bartimaeus, a disabled, needy, desperate man, they spoke potentially inspiring words with little affect, sounding coldly instructive, as if they were merely logistical directions they gave to check a box. Noah felt privilege in this moment privileged that none of his personal characteristics, traits, or background created a context for him to hear those words of Christ the way Bartimaeus or modern people on the margins might have heard them. He felt pangs of indictment as he acknowledged this, but it was all part of remaining immersed in the scene. Especially because, just then, the man beside Noah at the roadside spoke again, saying, they're talking to you, you know. Before, Noah felt like he was just brushing off a shallow comment from a plucky bystander. This time, the man was addressing Noah personally. For a second, Noah wondered if he had missed something along the roadside crowds near him, but he could tell there weren't many others gathered closely to where he stood. Then Noah realized, he's talking about the disciples, I think. What do you mean they're talking to me? They were speaking to Bartimaeus as they walked over to him. Noah gave it another moment's thought, taking a beat. Nah, he concluded. Noah looked a bit to his side with a raised brow and a dismissive look for that man. In doing so, he glimpsed the man's profile momentarily. Something felt familiar about the guy, but Noah didn't pay it much heed, for the episode still unfolding before him was coming to a head. Bartimaeus and the disciples had reached Jesus. The two disciples loosened their grip on Bartimaeus's arms, such that they were now just keeping him balanced rather than helping him along. The blind man now stood before the one he had called Son of David. In this moment, Noah felt hyper-focused. He didn't move closer to Jesus and Bartimaeus, but his attention was totally locked in. Remembering the story loosely, but clearly enough, no one knew what came next. Jesus is going to ask him a question, and Bartimaeus is going to answer him. Jesus is going to ask him what he wants Jesus to do for him, and he's going to have a response. Holy shit, Noah thought. Sure enough, just as Noah remembered, as Jesus beheld Bartimaeus face to face, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Noah heard Jesus as clear as day. It was almost as if Jesus had been bugged and Noah was wearing an earpiece. Even though Jesus was 50 yards away, Noah took in his question as clearly as if Jesus had spoken it to him face to face. Again, the man beside Noah spoke up Noah, he is speaking to you. This time, the man's tone made him sound like a teacher who had caught one of his students spacing out and sought to firmly but warmly bring that student back to reality. Noah didn't get it because he was paying close attention to the interaction happening right in front of him. He thought he was doing everything he should do to soak in this encounter. Yet the man, who first sounded like a critic and then a kind acquaintance, now had a sound that penetrated through to Noah like that of a beloved teacher. Three short utterances, especially with all the hubbub around him and the excitement of watching this event, were not enough to know the voice for sure, but Noah didn't feel like he could dismiss that sound anymore. Noah curled his lips a bit in doubt and curiosity and then turned toward the man. This put his back to Jesus. As Noah looked beside him, there was no man there, at least not anymore. There was no one anywhere close by. Noah didn't even notice the roadside crowd anymore. He thought it was weird, but he now felt he wasn't alone despite the fact that the crowd he had been among was no longer there. Noah turned back toward the road to watch again, and what he saw next astounded him he was now face to face with Jesus. In a moment packed with overwhelming profundity, held stable by a somehow unshaken calm, Noah beheld Jesus. He knew from the events he had been watching that this must be Christ, but he didn't see Jesus' face or bodily features with any distinctness. Nonetheless, he felt, he knew, he was standing face to face with the person of Christ. Then he remembered his reaction when Bartimaeus was looking Jesus in the eye, despite his own blindness. Jesus is going to ask him a question, and Bartimaeus is going to answer him. Jesus is going to ask him what he wants Jesus to do for him, and Bartimaeus is going to have a response. Holy shit, Noah thought all over again, now standing where Bartimaeus stood. In that holy shit moment, Noah had a flash of the open ends of his life. It was like a car stuck in neutral despite having a working engine and transmission, or else as if he were driving a car coasting unencumbered on cruise control on a highway with no traffic jams or construction obstacles. Noah thought of his girlfriend of over a year, Joan, and where that was or wasn't going. He thought about growing up in Ohio and doing college in Chicago and where he ought to go next, if anywhere else. He remembered studying politics and squeezing in service outings and being inspired by the ideals of nonviolence and peaceful processes. He remembered, too, the lukewarm acceptance of being a sociology major and completing a transcript with that unthrilling notation. He thought about his social-emotional wellness, sturdy enough but maybe not capable of pursuing or reaching the high points it formerly did. He thought of his spiritual life, his steady habit of going to Mass and trying to bring Joan along even if he was often a cardboard cutout of himself simply resting obligatorily in the pew each week. He finally thought of his job, his meh feelings about insurance, and his indecision about doubling down to climb the ladder of responsibilities and compensation. He remembered the joy of being deployed generously across the Rio Grande Valley, the feelings of exhaustion and fulfillment, of emptying himself and being filled in turn, a constant cycling renewal of love. None of these thoughts were new, None were epiphanic realizations. Rather, the encounter of this moment simply stirred them from various depths and crannies and churned fresh sediment to the tidal surfaces above. Despite the rush and swirl, Noah felt no need to synthesize any of it into a long or detailed answer. In the moment of encounter, these thoughts that bubbled up freshly felt as if they were already and completely known. They came together into a clear though unspoken presentation laid before the face of Christ in stillness. Noah drew on this abrupt clarity and began to speak a thesis sentence that would be followed by no body paragraphs, no persuasive arguments, and no anticipated objections from an interlocutor. Noah said, grant me grace that I may have clarity. Little spurts of what and oh no say more say more and bro tried to arise behind those eight words. But somehow, those little bubbles of exasperation popped before they reached the surface. Instead, Noah's heart remained at rest. His body relaxed. These self-doubts didn't go extinct, but they lacked any binding power. They dissipated before they could impact. Noah stood at rest, peaceful in the wake of eight simple words. Jesus, perhaps smiling in his indistinct corporality, replied to Noah, Go your way. Your faith will save you. Again, Noah heard a voice beside him. When he turned to look, he once again saw no one, but the voice continued. O oh Lord, come to my assistance. It was the echo of the monk's steadfast chant, starting with a single man's voice, intoning the call to prayer. It was 5.45 a.m. Lauds had began. Noah had heard the first words of their dawning prayer bouncing off the resonant walls of the monastery church. You are making haste to help me, Noah thought. I think. So I have to make an admission about the Liturgy of the Hours. Over the years, I've had some friends who are big fans of the Liturgy of the Hours who pray it regularly and who have even invited me to pray it with them. And of course, I'm happy to pray with friends who invite me to pray with them. But for whatever reason... I could just never get into it, and it never seemed to really do anything special for me or invite me to positive places in my prayer. And I think at a certain point, you kind of have a sense of what prayers to try to work your way through and get to know better and learn better, and which ones maybe you can set aside. And looking back on it, I think part of the reason why I've struggled to enjoy the Liturgy of the Hours is because my first exposure to it was as a retreatant at the Abbey of Gethsemane. So rather than simply sitting around a chapel or a small room with friends and breviaries, I was in this beautiful, stony, woody, uh, you know, rural set apart chapel in this solitude and quiet. And with these professional prayers, these monks who pray this prayer seven times a day and work their way through the whole of the book of Psalms in every two weeks and having that experience with those monks and with uh, the people in my choir with whom I was on retreat, I think sort of made me a Liturgy of the Hours snob and made it so that the only way I can really plug into that discipline is in that setting. So I think it's for uh, the indefinite future is sort of reserved as a pilgrimage uh, Liturgy of the Hours attitude where I think I can only deeply and fully appreciate it going back to that first experience I had of it that was so special to me. Kind of on a related note, Uh, The other major retreat I went on during college, besides my two trips to Gethsemane with my choir, was this conference called Catholics on Call, which was uh, thrown for people in their 20s and early mid-30s. And it was meant to draw people from all range of discernment. Folks who just think they want to be active in the church as volunteers, catechists, what have you. Uh, All the way over to people who wanted to be professional ministers in some capacity and even onto people who are actively discerning religious life or priesthood, including we had a guy who was going to begin his formation right after the conference ended. So it was this really neat spread of folks from all over the country, all kind of around the same age, all with similar vocational questions. We got to hear some great talks, have some great prayer experiences together and lots of time to socialize and have some great conversations. And I'll never forget the, one of the liturgies that we celebrated together, uh, The gospel was the healing of the blind beggar Bartimaeus from Mark 10. And for whatever reason, the way the disciples call out, take courage, get up, he is calling you. The way the priest proclaimed it that day, the way that mass felt deeply communal and very intimate. Those words jumped out to me. And a friend and I really chewed on them a lot throughout our conversations the rest of the week. To the point where when we got our free t-shirts, we even took our shirts to a shop and got those phrases added to the back. Uh, of the blank white t-shirt so that we would remember those key words from Mark 10. And so they always sort of pinballed around with me and were big uh, as I discerned each step going forward from um, figuring out my postgrad service year, trying to figure out first jobs, discerning engagement and marriage with my wife. Those questions always stuck with me um, in the context of Jesus calling out through his disciples, through people in my life, take courage, get up, he is calling you. That our vocation isn't something that we have to try to timidly poke around at or be, you know, flimsy and wispy about, but that there is an invitation from Jesus, first through his disciples and then through the way that he receives Bartimaeus, to try to find some courage, conviction, to turn to your passions, and to react to God's invitation with um, some emphasis with some oomph, and so Mark Ten always meant a lot to me, because I liked the way that it was a challenge to to own what you were thinking about doing, with some serious convictions and convictions of faith. Um, so Mark Ten has always been really important to me. I convinced my wife to make it the gospel at our wedding, and it continues to be kind of a deep well to me at least of um, challenges. And I think the immersive practice with scripture is a really uh, great exercise regardless, but that passage in particular lends itself to some neat explorations as you think about everything that's happening on that road near Jericho. So maybe a good thing to bring to your prayer this week would be those key lines from the disciples in Mark 10, where if you're having some indecision or some uncertainty or maybe some self-doubt, to reassure yourself with those words from Jesus's friends, his messengers, take courage, get up, he is calling you. God has ongoing invitations for each of us. Even if our state of life is sorted out, even if our particular vocation is landed in a certain career or job, God's invitations are ongoing. And finding that courage to get up and move can be a big part of responding. That's all for this episode. Remember, all the links for this book and my other writing is at my link tree. linktr.e danmasterton. That's l i n k t r e slash danmasterton. Thanks for listening, and I hope your gifts and passions are meeting the needs of the people and world around you. Instrumentals for this podcast were improvised and performed by Jason Pham.